How does money work? Cowrie shells and dollars have value only in our common imagination. Their worth is not inherent in the chemical structure of shells and paper, or their color, or their shape. In other words, money isn't a material reality. It's a psychological construct. It works by converting matter into mind. But why does it succeed? Why should anyone be willing to exchange a fertile rice paddy for a handful of useless cowrie shells? Why are you willing to flip hamburgers to sell health insurance or babysit three obnoxious brats when all you get for your exertion is a few pieces of colored paper? People are willing to do such things when they trust the figments of their collective imagination. Trust is the raw material from which all types of money are minted. When a wealthy farmer sold his possessions for a sack of cowrie shells and traveled with them to another province, he trusted that upon reaching his destination, other people would be willing to sell him rice, houses, and fields in exchange for the shells. Money is accordingly a system of mutual trust. Not just any system of mutual trust. Money is the most universal and most efficient system of mutual trust ever devised. And now, Bitcoin is the most trustworthy thing. What created this trust was a very complex and long-term network of political, social, and economic relations. Why do I believe in the cowrie shell, or gold coin, or dollar bill? Because my neighbors believe in them. And my neighbors believe in them because I believe in them. And we all believe in them because our king believes in them and demands them in taxes. And because our priests believe in them and demands them in tithes. Take a dollar bill and look at it carefully. You'll see that it is simply a colorful piece of paper with the signature of the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury on one side and the slogan, In God We Trust, on the other. We accept the dollar in payment because we trust in God and the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury. The crucial role of trust explains why our financial systems are so tightly bound up with our political, social, and ideological systems why financial crises are often triggered by political developments, and why the stock market can rise or fall depending on the way traders feel on a particular morning. Initially, when the first versions of money were created, people didn't have this sort of trust, so it was necessary to define as money things that had real intrinsic value. History's first known money, Sumerian barley money, is a good example. It appeared in Sumer around 3000 BC, at the same time and place and under the same circumstances in which writing appeared. Just as writing developed to answer the needs of intensifying administrative activities, so barley money 
developed to answer the needs of intensifying economic activities. Barley money was simply barley, fixed amounts of barley grains used as a universal measure for evaluating and exchanging all other goods and services. The most common measure was the silla, equivalent to roughly 0.25 gallons. Standardized bowls, each except capable of containing one silla, were mass-produced so that whenever people needed to buy or sell anything, it was easy. To measure the necessary amounts of barley, salaries too were set and paid in sillas of barley. A male laborer earned 60 sillas a month, a female laborer 30 sillas. A foreman could earn about between 1,200 to 5,000 sillas. Not even the most ravenous foreman could eat 1,250 gallons of barley a month but he could use the sillas he didn't eat to buy all sorts of other commodities, oil, goats, slaves, and something else to eat besides barley. Even though barley has intrinsic value, it was not easy to convince people to use it as money rather than as just another commodity. In order to understand why, just think what would happen if you took a sack full of barley to your local shopping center and tried to buy a shirt or a pizza. The vendors would probably call security. Still, it was somewhat easier to build trust in barley as a first type of money because barley has an inherent biological value. Humans can eat it. On the other hand, it was difficult to store and transport barley. The real breakthrough in monetary history occurred when people gained trust in money that lacked inherent value, but was easier to store and transport. Such money appeared in ancient Mesopotamia in the middle of the third millennium BC. This was the silver shekel. The silver shekel was not a coin, but rather 0.3 ounces of silver. When Hammurabi's code declared that a superior man who killed a slave woman must pay her owner 20 silver shekels, it meant that he had to pay 6 ounces of silver, not 20 coins. Most monetary terms in the Old Testament are given in terms of silver rather than coins. Joseph's brothers sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 silver shekels, or rather 6 ounces of silver. Same price as a slave woman. He was a youth after all. Unlike the barley silla, the silver shekel had no inherent value. You cannot eat it, drink it, or clothe yourself in silver, and it's too soft for making useful tools. Plowshares or swords of silver would crumple almost as fast as ones made out of aluminum foil. But they they were but they are used for anything. Rather, when they are used for anything, silver and gold are made into jewelry, crowns, and other status symbols. Luxury goods that members of a particular culture identify with high social status. Their value is purely cultural. 
set weights of precious metals eventually gave birth to coins. The first coins in history were struck around 640 BC by King Aliates of Lydia in western Anatolia. These coins had a standardized weight of gold or silver and were imprinted with an identification mark. The mark testified to two things. First, it indicated how much precious metal the coin contained. Second, it identified the authority that issued the coin and that guaranteed its contents. Almost all coins in use today are descendants of the Lydian coins. Coins had two important advantages over unmarked metal ingots. First, the latter had to be weighed for every transaction. Second, weighing the ingot is not enough. How does the shoemaker know that the silver ingot I put down for my boots is really made of pure silver and not of lead covered in the outside of a thin silver coating? Coins help solve these problems. The mark imprinted on them testifies to their exact value. So the shoemaker doesn't have to keep a scale of his cash on his cash register. More importantly, the mark on the coin is a signature of some political authority that guarantees the coin's value. The shape and size of the mark varied tremendously throughout history. But the message was always the same. I, the great king so-and-so, give you my personal word that this metal disc contains exactly 0.2 ounces of gold. If anyone dares counterfeit this coin, it means he is fabricating my own signature, which would be a blot on my reputation. I will punish such a crime with the utmost severity. That's why counterfeit money has always been considered a much more serious crime than other acts of deception. Counterfeiting is not just cheating, it's a breach of sovereignty, an act of subversion against the power, privileges, and person of the king. The legal term is laissez majesty, or in other words, violating majesty, and was typically punished by torture and death. As long as people trusted the power and integrity of the king, they trusted his coins. Total strangers could easily agree on the worth of a Roman denarius coin because they trusted the power and integrity of the Roman emperor, whose name and picture adorned it. In figure 27, one of the earliest coins in history from Lydia of the 7th century BC. In turn, the power of the emperor rested on the denarius. Just think how difficult it would have been to maintain the Roman Empire without coins. If the emperor had to raise taxes and pay salaries in barley and wheat, it would have been impossible to collect barley taxes in Syria, transport the funds in the central treasury in Rome, and transport them again in Britain to Britain in order to pay the legions there. It would have been equally difficult to maintain the empire if the inhabitants of the city of Rome believed in gold coins, but the subject populations rejected this belief, putting their trust instead in cowrie shells, ivory beads, or rolls of cloth.